right. Well, hey, good morning, everyone. I'm ready to start. Are you ready to start? Are you really? Because we're going to start with some audience participation. Everyone change their answer? <laughs> all right, audience participation, here we go. Um, I have uh, a movie quote for you, all right? What I'm going to do is I'm going to say the first part of it, first part of the scene. I'm going to point at you, and I want you to finish it, okay? So you, you guys feeling ready? Feeling ready for this? All right, here we go. It goes like this. You want answers? I think I'm entitled to them. You want answers? I want the truth. Yes, there you go. Good job. Give yourselves a round of applause. I see my wife and my sister-in-law being completely clueless right now because they're like, yeah, pop culture references we don't know. That is Tom Cruise, Jack Nicholson, and A Few Good Men. Fantastic, fantastic movie. Um, probably the most well-known, uh, recognizable, quoted courtroom scene in like cinematic history if, like, if you were to stack up all the like let me give me courtroom scenes that have ever been on tv or movies it's like top of the list is that scene it's that part of the quote you want the truth you can't handle the truth famous well-known courtroom scene as we move into today's text we're going to be kind of looking at another courtroom scene um, and a similar kind of questioning uh, of Jesus in a conversation with some religious leaders, and, and they, they're asking, they're prying, they're wanting to get at the identity of Jesus, the truth of who he is, and as we kind of discover, they can't handle the truth. Um, so that's what we're going to look at today. We're going to be wrapping up in John chapter 5. We've been in John 5 for a month. Uh, we're finally going to finish John 5 today. Uh, what I really want us to do before we get to the end of it is give us a brief recap. You can check out all the videos on hopecommunityonline.org. But it's going to make a lot more sense if we are tracking from the beginning. So John 5, we start off. Jesus shows up at a place called the Pool of Bethesda. All these people who are sick, who are, uh, have different uh, diseases or, or different disabilities. And there's one particular guy there who's been paralyzed for 38 years. And Jesus heals this man. He tells him, hey, get up. Pick up your mat and walk. Uh, and there's this beautiful picture of how, man, God intersects our lives, and he does for us what we can't do for ourselves. He heals us. He saves us. He gives us new life. And then there's the, the call to, okay, now get up and walk in that new life. Uh, and so it's this beautiful moment. It's this miracle. It's a celebration. But there's like a caveat. There, there's a, oh, there's something else. The, the, the tone of the music changes because we discover that Jesus heals this man on the Sabbath. Um, and for the Jewish people, they're not supposed to do any work on the Sabbath. It's a day of rest, no working, according to God's law, um, which is fine. But according to the law that the religious leaders had kind of added on top of it, their interpretation of God's law, their, their additions to God's law, their defining what work is and what work isn't, they see Jesus heal someone on the Sabbath, and they're like, you can't do that. Healing on the Sabbath is work, and you told this guy to pick up his mat and walk, and that's work. So you're breaking the Sabbath, you're telling him to break the Sabbath. And so we were kind of, we kind of looked at, and we were confronted with this idea of kind of like religiosity that becomes about all these rules and all these things, and, and Jesus is wanting to point to life. And in his defense to them of saying, here's why I can do this, this is where we were last week, essentially he, he comes to this conclusion where he tells them like, I'm, I'm God, I made the Sabbath, and I have authority over it. And sometimes as modern people, we're like, well, Jesus didn't make that claim. He didn't claim to be God. He never put the words together, I am God, as we as modern Western American people want him to say. But to his original first century Jewish audience, they heard loud and clear what he was saying because their reaction to his claims was, we're going to kill you. You're claiming to be equal with God. And so throughout his claims, he, he says things and claims things about himself that only God could do. 
So we looked at this idea where he says that the, the, the Son of God, God, like God is one, but there's this plurality within God. There's God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. And he's like, I'm God the Son, I'm God among you, like in your presence, in your midst, God become flesh. And so I have the authority to, to give life to the dead, to give new life, to judge, to do these things that these Jewish people are like, only God can do that. It's like Jesus is like, I know, right? Like that's kind of the point. Only God can do these things. That's where we left things off. We're going to pick up things today and wrap up this section of John is him going now, okay, now you don't just have to take my word for it. Because he's been like, he's making this claim, I'm God, I'm the God of your ancestors, I am the most high God, but you don't just have to take my word for it. And Jesus is going to start calling witnesses to the stand to testify about himself, to say, okay, here are some other people who, who have, have pointed to the same thing that I am claiming about myself. It's interesting, and these are the things I like, I like nerd out over. I'm like, I just want to tell you this because I think it's so cool. And some of you are going to be like, I don't think it's that cool, but I have the microphone, so I'm going to tell you anyway. Uh, it's interesting that the, the, the gospel writer John actually structures his entire gospel to be like a courtroom scene playing out. That John structures things in such a way where he's going to be like, here's a witness, here's a witness, here's a witness, here's a witness. And at the end, he's like, okay, render your verdict. Who do you say Jesus is? He actually tells us that's the point of his gospel. At the end of John's gospel, he says, you know, Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. So lots of stuff Jesus did. I couldn't write it all down. But these, the ones that I have written, they're written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, that by believing you may have life in his name. So John has Jesus on trial. What is his identity? Who is he? Is he the Messiah? Is he the Son of God? And he starts calling witnesses. So people who interact with Jesus, what do they say about him? The things, the miracles, the signs that Jesus does, what do they say about him? And it's structured in such a way where we're the jury at the end to go, okay, make a call. What do you decide? What's interesting in this passage that we're looking at is the whole of John's gospel kind of plays out that way. But this is like a courtroom scene within a courtroom scene. Because now Jesus is like, okay... I'm going to call some witnesses to the stand to testify about who I am. And there's four different witnesses that he calls that we're going to look at. And as we look at each one of these, here's what I want us to be thinking of. First thing is first is like, okay, what is, how does this relate to what Jesus is claiming to his audience at that time? Right? How would they have understood this? But then I want to pull it into our world a little bit as well. And if you're someone who's a Christian, a, a person of faith, or maybe you're exploring Christianity, how does this relate to my faith or my questions? And then if you are a follower of Jesus, I want us to go one step further and ask the question of how does this witness that Jesus is calling to the stand, how does that inform how I'm to be a witness? Because if you're a Christian, one of the things that we are called to is you are all witnesses. We are all called to testify to the reality of who Jesus is and what he has done. He commissions his followers and says, you are going to be my witnesses to the ends of the world. How does this inform our faith, and how does this inform how we are witnesses? So jumping in, John 5, starting in verse 31, Jesus, in a conversation with the religious leaders, says, If I testify about myself, my testimony is not true. Uh, and so what Jesus is not saying is I'm lying, right? Haha, <laughs> if it's just me saying this, it's not true. Um, because Jesus doesn't need anyone to back up his claims about himself, right? He's like, I am who I am regardless of what you say about me or what you think about me. But what we're going to see in a minute is he's, he's going to say these things for the benefit of the people who are listening. He's like, I, I don't need anybody to make my case for me, but for your benefit, so you'll believe. By kind of your human standards, by human standards, this is true. If someone testifies about themselves, you, you can't just believe it. 
these religious leaders that were uh, very, very familiar with the Old Testament law, um, what, the law that will be found in what we call our Old Testament, it's just their Bible, it's the Jewish scriptures, the Hebrew Bible. Um, according to their law, if you were to bring charges against someone, you had to bring several witnesses. You couldn't just say it and, and that it'd be uh, taken as, as serious. And the same is true today. Jimmy, can I pick on you again? I'm, I'm gonna pick, I, I, I made this scenario with Jimmy in the volunteer service, so it's the same truth today. If Jimmy shows up and breaks into my garage and steals one of my lawnmowers, you guys got to watch out for this guy, okay? <laughs> but, and, I, and I go to like the, the police or like we go to court and be like, he stole my lawnmower, okay? A judge is not going to be like, you know what? Phil said that Jimmy stole his lawnmower. He must have done it, right? But if I go and say, yeah, and my wife was home at the time and she heard something in the garage and a neighbor saw a truck pulling away that fits the description of Jimmy's truck and, and someone was out in their front yard taking a selfie and they caught the video in the background, him just tearing out of there. Now, all of a sudden, we have several witnesses that corroborate what I'm saying. And by human standards, it now becomes credible. That's what Jesus is about to do. It's like, I don't actually need any of these things to, like, I am who I am regardless of what you think, but I want you to come to the realization of who I am. So let me call some witnesses and, and, and use this standard of according to, to their law that he needs to bring some witnesses. So he calls the first witness to the stand. He says, there's another who testifies about me. And I know that his testimony uh, that he gives about me is, is true. You sent messengers to John and he testified to the truth. Witness number one, Jesus calls to the stand, is John the Baptist. Um, just kind of a, a so, because this gets confusing. There's two Johns that are really important over the next couple of minutes. There's John the Gospel writer, and then there's John the Baptist, two different Johns. So John writes about John, 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 John. That's going to get very confusing. But that, so he's talking about John the Baptist. He says, hey, John the Baptist showed up, and he was a witness. He testified about me. John the Baptist's whole life, his ministry, his calling was all about pointing people to Jesus. In the first, uh, the first chapter of John's gospel, we looked at this all the way back in February, I think. Uh, John the gospel writer tells us about John the Baptist and says this about him. He says, there was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to testify concerning the light so that all, through him all might believe. John has this theme where like, he refers to Jesus as the light of the world. He's like, John the Baptist came to point to people, point people to that light and say, that's the one we've been waiting for. Here he is. This is the guy. That was John the Baptist's life, his mission, his ministry. And notice Jesus says to these religious leaders that you sent messengers to John. In the first chapter of John's gospel, there's this scene that plays out where John the Baptist is drawing all these crowds to himself, and the religious leaders, the very religious leaders that Jesus is talking to now, they send messengers to be like, go figure out what this John guy is all about. Like, he's, he's, he's drawing crowds. Who is he? Is he like the Messiah? Is he the one we've been waiting for? And when the messengers from the religious leaders show up to John the Baptist, they're like, hey, who are you, you know? And John, over and over, is like, I'm not the guy. I'm not the one you're waiting for. I'm not the one you've been looking for. I'm just a messenger. I'm just a voice in the wilderness. I'm just a witness. I am the one that is pointing others to the one who is coming. And while these messengers are there talking to John the Baptist, Jesus shows up and John goes, look, behold, there's the guy that we've been waiting for. It's the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. It's about him. It's about him. It's about him. And so Jesus is drawing back on that encounter. He's like, you guys remember you sent messengers to John? Well, they heard it. And I'm sure they reported back to you what they heard. 
Well, Jesus kind of pulls out of that and, and makes this little note of what we were mentioning a minute ago. He says, I don't receive human testimony, but I say these things so that you may be saved. Again, hey, I'm about to give you these witnesses because I want you to believe. I want you to know who I am. I say these things so that you may be saved. And then he says, John, John the Baptist, was a burning and shining lamp. And you are willing to rejoice for a while in his light. You are a burning and shining lamp. And you, you rejoiced. You enjoyed what John was doing. That there was something about John the Baptist and his life and his ministry that people were actually very, very attracted to. They're like, this is, this is unique. This is different. We want to know what this is all about. John the Baptist was like the first prophet to show up in Israel for like 400 years. And so when he shows up, people are like, whoa. And there's these crowds that go to see him. And he was a crazy man, okay? Like John the Baptist, he, he took, from, from the time that he was born, he was dedicated as like a Nazarite, to have a Nazarite vow, which meant he would never cut his hair, never shave his beard. And at the time he's doing his ministry, he's like in his early 30s. So imagine a guy who's never shaved or had a haircut in like 30-some years and just like, he's cousin it, man, right? Like it's just like he's just one giant hairball. Um, and uh, kind of scholars would kind of think that the way they, they what, what a Nazarite would do is twist all of that hair into just a couple big thick cornrows. And it would like come down his side and then he would carry like a sack, like a giant fanny pack, I guess, and put his hair in there. So he's like carrying his hair. I mean, so just, just picture, he's living in the wilderness, he's eating bugs and honey, and it's like, this is John the Baptist, with this message over and over and over again of God's about to do something, 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 and all these crowds would come out and hear him, and the religious leaders send messengers out to hear him, and when they show up, or when Jesus shows up, he's like, there he is, this is the guy, this is the one that we have been waiting for. And so Jesus is like, yeah, John's life, it was, and it, was, it was this beautiful light. It was a lamp. It was shining, and people were drawn to it. They were drawn to it. So as we pull that out into our world, the question then becomes, is that the kind of life that you and I are living? You're a Christian. Are you like completely just John the Baptist level sold out to Jesus? You can get a haircut, okay? That part's okay. <laughs> but is it just like, I'm so committed to this thing. I'm living for something so much bigger than myself. Like, what, what do our lives, what are they witnesses to? What do they testify about? Everybody's life testifies about something. And the question becomes, like, is my life testifying? Am I, is it, when people see my life, do they, do they recognize that I am living for something bigger than myself? Because even as like a Christian or follower of Jesus, a lot of times, if we're honest, if, if someone were to look from the outside looking in, or if we were to objectively look at our own lives, it's like, no, my life kind of witnesses or testifies to my own desires, my own happiness, my own kingdom, my own dreams, my family, whatever that is. And it's like, do our lives testify to Jesus and his kingdom or us and our kingdom? Are we sold out? Are we committed? Is it in such a way, too, that people are drawn to it? Because, hey, they, you saw John and you rejoiced. There was something, like, magnetic about him. And, and that's, that's true of us as well. We live that sold-out kind of way. If you've, if you've ever met someone that had that level of, like, just all in for their faith, you're just like, whoa. There's something that draws you to that person. I mean, sadly, it's kind of rare within, like, the American church. It, it's, I'll be honest, it's rare in my life sometimes where it's like, am I doing this? When you see that person and you're like, there's just something different about them and they're a little weird, but weird in a good way, right? You're like, 
hi, like, you're just, you're so, you're so strange, you're so different, but I think I like it, and I'm like, what is this about? And it just, and they're like, it's, it's Jesus, man, it's Jesus, it's Jesus. Because John was a, this, this lamp that was burning and shining, at that time, it would have been like, an, it would have had oil lamps. You guys ever seen an oil lamp? They're really cool. I remember my grandparents had one. They never lit it, never used it, but I can remember there being like this glassy lamp thing with oil in the bottom and like a wick. You know, you, you turn the wick up, you light it or whatever. I always wanted to light it because I was a kid and I was a little pyro because that's what kids do, but they never lit it. Um, but like an oil lamp, right? Eventually, though, with an oil lamp with John, the oil runs out. The wick burns up. When that happens, the light is gone. And notice what Jesus says about John. He says, John was. And, and you, you rejoice for a little while. Past tense thing. Most likely when... Jesus is saying this, John the Baptist is, is dead. John the Baptist, because of his commitment and his passion, his like, this is what God has called me to, so I'm doing it. He ends up thrown in prison, and then he ends up beheaded, basically for sport, for people's entertainment. And he's gone, and his light was gone. It shined for a while, but it made a massive impact. And it reminds us, or it should remind us, that life is temporary. It's short. It's fleeting. The average lifespan in America is about 76-ish years. It actually went down like a year or two ago for the first time in a long time. So you're like, well, that's happy. <laughs> it was like 77 or 78. Now it's like 76, 77. But the point is, that, that's the average. Some, some of us are going to get 96. Some of us are going to get the average 76. Some of us are going to get 36. And we say, well, that's a shame if someone only gets 36. But like, the amount isn't the point. The point is, what do we do with it? John the Baptist would have been in his early 30s whenever he was beheaded. And he made a greater impact on the world than most of us probably ever will. I love this quote um, it's from Corey Ten Boom. She said, the measure of a life after all is not its duration, but its donation. Get to the end of our lives, no matter how long or short they are, the me- our, the, our lives will be measured by like, well, not how long did you live, but how much of yourself did you give away? Did you live for something bigger than yourself? How much as followers of Jesus do we donate, did we give towards Jesus and his kingdom? John bore witness to Jesus. And, and here's, here's the thing. One of the strongest cases for testifying about Jesus, Jesus calls him like the, the witness of John the Baptist in his day, but that's one of the strongest witnesses and testimonies for Jesus today as well are people who are like, this is the guy. I'm living for him. He is real, man. He has changed my life. He's changing the world. Like, like people who are fully committed to God, to Jesus, to who he is and what he is doing, there is something about that that is just a burning and shining light that points to the reality of who Jesus is and what he does. Witness number one, John the Baptist. Witness number two, Jesus continues and says, I've got a greater testimony than John's because of the works that the Father has given me to accomplish. These works that I am doing testify about me, that the Father has sent me. Jesus like, here, here's witness number two. I'd like to call to the stand my works, the miracles that he was doing, the signs that, that he was doing. Again, keeping the context in mind, this whole dialogue within John 5, it started when Jesus healed a paralyzed man. It started with a miracle that he did. And the religious leaders are like flipping out because they're like, you healed a guy on the Sabbath. And Jesus is like, you're missing the part where I, I healed a guy, okay? Like, the thing that is pointing to my identity is the very thing that you are ticked at me about. It's like Jesus shows up and he does things and he does miracles, he does works, he does these things that point to the reality of who he is. John, throughout his gospel, he doesn't just say miracles, he always says signs. 
signs that Jesus does. Because they're not just parlor tricks, they're not just random. The signs that Jesus does, they, they point to the reality of who he is. They proclaim something about his identity, namely that he is God in the flesh, and he has the power and the authority of God. So when you look at the miracles, the signs of Jesus, he does things that in this first century Jewish reader's mind, they're like, only God can do those things. Only God has the power over those things. And so Jesus displays he has power over nature. Storms rise up, and he tells the storm to stop it, and the storm dies down. He's able to create out of, like, basically out of nothing. Like, there's people that are hungry, and there's, there's no food, and all of a sudden, boom, here's bread and fish, and we can feed a multitude of people. He provides, and there's an abundance. That, that he has power over sickness, over death itself. These things that, again, they're like, wait, only God has the power to do that. And Jesus, through his miracles, is like, I know you're seeing the power of God among you. Not only that, but he does this really cool thing where he kind of, with some of his miracles, he retells Israel's story. So these Jewish people that he's primarily talking to, they have this long history with God and how God had worked in their midst. And Jesus will retell part of their story and do a miracle that points to something in their story, and then he'll insert himself right in the middle of it and be like, yeah, it was about me. And so the way that John structures his gospel, the very next chapter that we're going to read right after this is the feeding of the 5,000. He feeds all these people with bread that they need, and then the people start to grumble, and he does this little teaching thing, and, and they're like, well, you know, our ancestors had manna in the desert. Manna was this bread-like, it was like this flaky-like substance that as the nation of Israel was wandering in the wilderness, God provided for them every single day, and it gave them life. It sustained them. And Jesus puts himself in the place of it and says, yeah, you had, you had that in the wilderness, but I am the bread of life that's come down from heaven. So over and over, he's putting himself right at the center of Israel's story. He's putting himself in the position of the Most High God. Over and over, Jesus and his miracles are saying, I have the power to do stuff. I can change things. I can do things supernaturally. I heal the lame. I give sight to the blind. I calm storms. I feed crowds. I raise the dead. We'll talk about that for a minute in our context because for some of us, we have a really hard time with that idea that Jesus has the power to do do things. There's a tendency sometimes to be like, well, you know, I believe in Jesus and I believe he did miracles, but I don't know that he still does miracles. I don't know that he does those things today. And we've become so, almost so rational and so logical and so mechanical with our faith that it's like, no, I just, I'm so uncomfortable with that. That's out of the realm of possibilities. And I, I think Jesus would be like, hey, no, 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 I still have the power to change things in your life. I still speak, I still heal, I still direct, I still save, I still provide for people, I still can break addictions and save marriages, I still whisper to people and give dreams to people and put people in a certain direction, I still do those things. The question becomes, if we're pure Christians, like, well, do I believe that? Do I believe that in more than just like on paper and in theory, but like in reality, do I believe that he has the power to change stuff? We lean really, really hard into the rational, and I'm, I'm so this way. This is how my brain is wired. Like, as Western, like, American people, like, when it comes to faith, we're like, like we, we talk about the, the rational, the philosophical, the existential, the, the kind of, uh, uh, the ethical, the moral, like, all these parts of faith, the historical aspects, and I love that, and that's awesome, but the danger is sometimes we can do that at the expense of, yeah, but there's an experience of God. There is his power in your life that you can know. And I, I imagine this is a little bit of a tangent, but like if you track along with like the church at all, you'll know that like church isn't necessarily in a great spot in our country. 
like people have been leaving the church for a long time, the younger generations, like my peers and those younger than us are like, we're done with faith. And I think one of the biggest reasons why, like I've grown up in the church, but I want nothing to do with it now, is because we were handed a version of faith that was like, know these things, memorize these things, learn these things, here's doctrine, here's belief, and we knew a lot about God, but we never had an experience of his power in our lives. And if there's something that I want to be part of the legacy of our church to pass on to our kids and other generations and people who are looking for something is not that there's a stuff you can know about God, but you can experience his power in your life. He can do something in your life that there is no explanation for, and it can change everything about you. And that becomes this thing that Jesus is talking about. My works testify about me. Because if you're a follower of Jesus and his power shows up in, in your life, there's something that that says to you that's like, he is real, and I can't deny it because there's something that has happened in me or for me or in my family that outside of God working, I have no explanation for it. And that power is evident to people around, too. It's really hard to argue with a story to go, I have no explanation for how that person changed or how they were healed or how they were set free. And we go, it's Jesus, man. Like, he does stuff. He has done things throughout history. He continues to do things, and they point to who he is. Because my works testify about me. Third witness, it says, the Father who sent me, he himself has testified about me. Witness number three, Jesus says, hey, the Father. God the Father, as he's talking to these religious leaders, you know, God, most high God, we think of God, our Father God, he testifies about who I am. And so two different occasions in the, the, the life and the ministry of Jesus, once at his baptism, he goes to the Jordan River to be baptized by John the Baptist. Another time, Jesus goes up on this mountain, it's called the Mountain of Transfiguration, where just a handful of his disciples are with him and like, He's like his glory is revealed to them and they're like, ah, right? Uh, but after those two occasions, a voice from heaven says, this is my beloved son. I'm pleased with him. Do what he says. And so Jesus is like, yeah, like the father himself has testified about me. And then he, he this would be, the next thing he says would be so insulting to those that he's talking to. Like, you know, he's testified about me, but speaking of, you know, God's voice testifying about me, you religious leaders, You've never heard his voice at any time. You haven't seen his form. You don't have his word residing in you because you don't believe the one he sent. Now, this is a group of people who prided themselves. Their lives were all about, we know God. Like, we know him, and, you know, you guys, you, you peasant people, you don't know him as well as we know him. We know God. We love God. We follow God. We tell you how to follow God. Like, that's what we're all about. And Jesus is like, yeah, so cool, but actually you don't. You think you do, but you don't. And, and the reason that he gives for them not knowing is, listen, he's like, you don't know God because you don't believe the one he sent. You don't believe me. There's just, there's just such cool things happening here. Like, you've not heard his voice. A few verses before this, we looked at last week, Jesus says, like, when you hear the voice of the Son of God, like, the, the dead come to life at his voice. Later on in John's gospel, Jesus will talk about, like, I have my, my people, they're like sheep, and, and I'm the shepherd, and my sheep, they, they hear my voice. And he's like, you, you've not heard God's voice because you don't hear what I'm saying. You've not heard my voice. You haven't seen his form. Like, well, no one can see God. No one has ever seen God. God is spirit. And Jesus is like, I'm standing right in front of you. You, you don't have his word residing in you. The word of God, it's, it's more than just, I don't have a physical Bible with me, so we'll go with tablet. It's more than just like that physical thing that, that we hold. The word of God is like, it is God's plans, it is his, his purposes, it is, his, it is what he wants to do working in history, coming to fruition. This is why Isaiah the prophet says, like, the word of God, it goes out and it doesn't return void. Like, it does stuff. 
That's why the author of Hebrews says the word of God is alive and active. It's not just, it's what God wants to accomplish. And he said, you don't have that residing in you, but I am the word become flesh. That's how John opens his gospel. The word became flesh. It's like the perfect plans and purposes of God, like you're staring at what God wants to do in the world. But you don't see me. You don't hear him. You don't see him. You don't have his word in you because you don't see the one he sent. And so here are the questions for us. Is does our picture of God look like Jesus? And does the picture of God that we present to the world around us look like Jesus? And if we can do this weird disconnect, and I find myself doing this sometimes, and I don't know why, and I don't want to. It's like it's so hard to break where it's like, I, I'm a Christian, I believe in Jesus, I believe he's God, that he, he died for my sins, he rose from the grave, like he, he's seated at the right hand of God, like I say all the right things, and I, I got Jesus on this side, and his love, and his grace, and his truth, and his, like all the things about Jesus. But then there'll be certain things that I encounter, like reading scripture, and it's not not a passage explicitly about Jesus, and I'll be talking about God kind of generically, and like I disconnect the character of Jesus from God that I'm reading about, and there's like a, there's a, there's a discontinuity there. Why do I do that? Or sometimes when I'm praying, where it's like, you know, I know that Jesus, he's love, he's grace, he's forgiveness, like man, he, he, he's a friend, he's near to us. Again, the word became flesh, he got up close and personal, he gets into our lives, but then I'm praying, and it's like distant God, God out there somewhere. It's like, no, 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 like God has revealed his nature in Jesus. And so, like, do we, do we see God in that way fully? Do we portray that picture of God to others? Or do we have a picture of, of angry God, of judgmental God, of the God that's all about the rules, just do these things? Do we have a picture of, maybe, again, like, distant God, that he doesn't really care about my life? Do we have some sort of a cultural God? We talked a couple weeks ago about like uh, maybe it's conservative God or progressive God. Do, we have a, do I have an American God? Or do I have a picture of who God is as revealed by Jesus? You don't know the Father because you haven't seen me. Third witness was the Father himself. Fourth and final witness that Jesus gives us. He says, you pour over the scriptures because you think that you have eternal life in them, but they testify about me. But you're not willing to come to me so that you may have life. It's like, here's my final witness that I'm going to call to the stand. The scriptures testify about me. The scriptures. So he's talking to these religious leaders. You know, these are, these are guys who would have committed to memory what we call the Old Testament. So that, was their, that was their scripture. They knew it inside and out. And he's like, you, you know the scriptures. For us, in our context, that includes the Old Testament, that also includes the New, includes the Gospels about Jesus, includes the letters to the churches. And there's this idea of like, hey, you can build your life on memorizing the Bible, but miss the point. And Jesus says, it's about me. It points to me. That there is not life in the Bible itself, there is life in the one that the Bible testifies about. He says, you know, eternal life. We, we talk about this term a lot. Because eternal life does not just refer to the quantity of life that I live forever, but it also refers to the quality of that life. The, the, the life that God had originally intended for humanity in the garden was a life dwelling with him. He is the source of all goodness and life and beauty. He's like, I want you to be so wrapped up in that life that, that my life is not distinguishable from yours. I want you to have that goodness. And Jesus shows up and he's like, yeah, I've come to give you life to the fullest. I've come to give you that beautiful, abundant, eternal life now and, and, and into eternity and forever. And Jesus is like, but that kind of life, that, you think that's going to be found in the Bible in a literal sense, but if you just follow these rules and do these things and have these practices, he's like, that's not where life is found. It's found in the one who is revealed in those things. 
that the Bible itself, is, it's, it's, a, it's a roadmap taking us to Jesus. And, and that's something that, it should scare us a little bit, not like in a, oh, be afraid, be very afraid, but like, it gives us a sense of seriousness of like, all right, where's my heart, where's my faith? That it's possible to actually know our Bibles and know the scriptures and not know Jesus. I, I mean, I, I've known people and I've been this person from time to time that can chapter and verse you all day long, but don't have the love of Jesus in them. Like, it's, you can know your Bible and not know your Savior. We can spend our whole lives in church, but never actually be in Christ. And I'm not saying there's like, oh, just, we don't need the Bible, then just toss it off. No, like, we should open the scriptures, we should study them, we should see the beauty that's in them, we should try to understand the context. But when we do that, we should always go there with the expectation of, I'm going here to meet a person. There, there, there's somebody in these pages, there's somebody in these words that, that as I'm reading it, there's that third part of the Godhead, there's his spirit like working in me, drawing me to him, revealing Jesus to me. I should be going there looking to find someone. One author said this, he said the Greek word translated study, or in the translation we looked at was um, to pour over, but the Greek word translated study is erineu, which means to track the scent like a lion or a bloodhound. That's the way to study the scripture, to follow the scent of the blood, to sniff out the scarlet thread of the cross, to look for Jesus. So he's like, here, here are my witnesses. Here are my witnesses. There's John. There's the works that I'm doing. There's God the Father. There's the scriptures that you guys claim you know and you have memorized as the religious leaders. He begins to kind of wrap things up and says, I, I don't accept glory from people, but I know you. I know that you have no love for God within you. I've come in my Father's name and yet you don't accept me. If someone else comes in his own name, you'll accept him. And so Jesus is like, listen, like, like God has sent me, <laughs> and you don't accept me. But if somebody just shows up on their own accord, like, hey, I'm here, you're like, yeah, welcome in. Like, you're not accepting me even though God has sent me. And, and then he says this thing that is so piercing. He says, how can you believe since you accept glory from one another but don't seek the glory that comes from the only God? So he's given all these witnesses. But you get to the end, you get the impression, but it's, these witnesses, they're not moving the needle for the religious leaders. It's not changed their opinion of who Jesus is. Why is that? And Jesus is kind of getting at this idea, and he's like, because it, it was never about the witnesses in the first place. It wasn't about the reason. It wasn't about the evidence in the first place. He's like, it was about your heart. You don't want this to be true. You don't want me to be who I'm claiming to be. That you, there's something going on in your heart that is preventing you from seeing who I am. And he kind of pinpoints that for them. He says, you, you, you accept, you receive, you want glory from one another, but you don't want glory from God. He tells these religious leaders, you're more concerned about what the people think about you. You're more concerned about what you think about one another. You're more concerned about how Rome sees you and makes sure you know, you're still in a comfy position in a position of power. You're more concerned about the opinion of other human beings than you are of God himself. And a lot of times, that's where we find ourselves. Like when we're considering Christianity, maybe it's like, I've got, I think I might believe this, or maybe we are Christians, like, but am I going to live this out when it comes to being witnesses ourselves? One of the first objections that pops into most people's minds is what are people going to think? What am my family going to think of me if they know that I'm like, I'm like this Jesus person now? What, what, what are my friends going to think and my coworkers and my classmates? What's the world going to think of me? Like, it's like, I, I don't know. It's, I don't want to be known as one of those people that's just like, whoa, you're just like a weird religious person. And Jesus kind of brings to the surface this, this, 
this tension in us is like, ah, there's what I, how people see me, but then there's like what, what, I, what I know is true of God. And what is the verdict that I'm coming to as he wraps up his case in this course, courtroom? Just don't think that I'm going to accuse you, talk, again, these religious leaders, don't think I'm going to accuse you to the Father. Your accuser is Moses, on whom you've set your hope. For if you believe Moses, you would believe me, but because he wrote about me. But if you don't believe what he wrote, how will you believe my words? Now, when he name drops Moses to, like, to, to these religious leaders, it's just like, what? You, you better keep Moses' name out your mouth. Because like, Moses is their guy. Like Moses, is, is, to them, he's the one that brought them the law. And so he's just said, like, you're looking in the scriptures for me? It's like, well, they're like, well, yeah, Moses wrote the first, what we would call the first five books of the Bible are attributed to Moses. But even going all the way back full circle to this conversation, all the way back to the beginning of the section, Jesus healing the paralyzed guy, and they're like, you can't do that because it's the Sabbath. They don't name him directly, but they're citing Moses. Because Moses is the one that goes up the mountain that gets the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down, meets with God, comes down the mountain with the Ten Commandments. Moses comes down the mountain with one of those commands is, you will not do any work on the Sabbath. He comes down with the law, and Jesus is like, okay, you want to cite Moses. You think Moses is on your side with this. He's not. Moses was talking about me. He was predicting me. He was pointing to me. Throughout this, you know, John 5 and this conversation, but it's like every interaction that Jesus has with the Jewish leaders, especially throughout the Gospel of John, it's this repetitive thing of Jesus saying, you guys, the, this whole time, it's been about me. He's like, our, our history, our story, the nation of Israel was about me. Like, the, our scriptures, they're about me. Human history, it, it's been about me. What went wrong in the solution to humans' problem, it's about me. Like, over and over, it's like, this has all been about who I am, that I am the Son of God. I am the Messiah. I have come to redeem and restore what was broken. It's about me. And they're confronted with that question. Again, this, is, this kind of wraps up. He's like, My, you know, this case is adjourned. You make your decision. And Jesus leaves us with a very similar kind of thing. Okay, here I'm stating my case. And this, it's about me. It's what I've done. It's who I am. It's what I'm doing. And the question for them becomes the same question for us of, do you recognize that? Do you recognize that he is who he claims to be? Do I recognize that it's all about Jesus? That my life is about him. My family is about him. My career is about him. My thoughts, my actions, my words, they're about him. This church is about him. All of history has been about him. And so do, do we see these witnesses testifying to that? Do we see that the scripture, you open it up and it's, he's everywhere, he's on every page. Do we see him as, this is what God looks like. This is the perfect representation of God. Do we, do we see the miracles and go, you know what, I, I expect and I experience his power in my life as well. And finally, do our lives, the lives that we live, the things that we do, do they testify, do they proclaim the reality of Jesus to the world around us? To say he's real, he is good, he has changed my life, he can change your life, there is hope in him, and I am a living, breathing testament to that. That's what we're called to. God, we thank you that, um, that you are who you claim to be. Jesus, you, you don't need any anyone else to proclaim who you are. You are who you are from eternity past to eternity present. But Lord, I thank you that um, for our sake, 
for our sake that we have these witnesses, for our sake we have things that we can look to that proclaim the reality of who you are and what you've done. Lord, it's, it's humbling, it's exciting, it can be somewhat scary to know too that when we become your followers, you invite us into that story and you invite us to become witnesses. You invite us to proclaim who you are, what you're doing, and so I pray that you would just give us wisdom to know how to do that in our lives. What does it look like to testify to who you are? God, give us the strength, give us the encouragement, give us the boldness to do that. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.